Welcome, everyone. Bienvenidos. I am Danny Torres, host of the Talking 21 podcast and part of the Our Esquina podcast network. He was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania on January 19, 1950. Yet John Matlack was only 22 and a rookie picture of the New York Mets would never have imagined he would become a part of baseball lore at Three River Stadium. The date, September 30th, 1972, with only 13,117 fans in attendance, Pittsburgh Pirates right fielder Roberto Clemente would slowly step to the plate and in the bottom of the fourth would rope a double to left center field. He would become only the 11th player in MLB history with 3,000 hits or more. It would be Clemente's last regular season hit, and tragically on New Year's Eve of that same year, he would perish in an airplane accident while en route to Nicaragua on a humanitarian mission. And although John has been asked this question countless times about that historic moment in Pittsburgh, Matt lacks 13 seasons in the majors with the New York Mets and Texas Rangers also included being named the National League Rookie of the Year in 1972. A 1973 National League champion, a three-time All-Star, and 1975 All-Star Game MVP. This year, John was even inducted into the New York Mets Hall of Fame at City Field. But this year not only marks the 50th anniversary of his Major League Baseball debut with the Mets, but surprisingly for a proud father. He also watched his own son, Danny, sign with the San Diego Padres and pitch in the Arizona League in 1995. And although his career was shortened due to a recurring injury, today Danny is an accomplished singer and songwriter, game designer, and currently a senior producer at Marvel Adventures. So without further ado, let's welcome to the Talking 21 podcast, a father and son, two former pitchers, and most importantly, two great men. Please welcome to the Talking 21 podcast, John and Danny Matlack. Well, John and Danny Matlack, welcome to the Talking 21 podcast, and I am absolutely thrilled to have you both. You know, it's interesting in a previous uh, podcast episode, what I found rather interesting is not only did we have another father and son team, uh, Neil and Tom Walker, but it was interesting just to hear their dynamic and not necessarily having uh, two guests on the Talking 21 podcast. But once again, we have another father and son in uh, Danny and John Matlack, or we could actually say John and Danny Matlack. But again, guys, uh, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, maybe there might be a question or two that have never been asked and that the Talking 21 crew is going to be able to have an opportunity to hear. So, again, guys, thank you so very much. And I want to start with you, Danny. Um, interesting. Um, you were born in Mount Kisco in 1975. Your father's final season with the Mets was in 1977, and he was eventually traded to the Rangers. What are your earliest recollections of someone? Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was someone that saw your dad on TV. But what was your earliest recollections that someone told you that your father was a professional baseball player? 
You know, I think for me, it was, uh, we had just moved to Arlington and, you know, it's hard as a young child remembering all of those memories correctly, but I remember being very, very young and seeing someone playing baseball on TV and just being interested in baseball. And I remember my mom saying, that's your dad. And I was like, wait, that, that guy, that guy on the TV is my dad. And, and, and that was, I think my very earliest memory of, well, my dad's on TV. No wonder everyone likes me. <laughs> but uh, no, it, I think that was probably the first time. And, and I, I believe it might have been a game against Baltimore or Chicago White Sox or something when he was with the Rangers. Um, I, I have no memories of the Mets per se, other than photographs. But that was the first time I think was watching him on TV and realizing, OK, going to the ballpark and all those things is a real thing. Like it legitimately exists. So I think that was my very first memory of that. That's a pretty cool story there. You know, I want to now piggyback on to uh, your dad, John Matlack. John, you were born in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'd like for our Talking 21 listeners to hear, in essence, not only who was responsible for introducing you to the game of baseball, but when did you gravitate John to the sport? I think I was probably four and my grandfather who lived down the street, we lived in town in Westchester, uh, gave me a three fingered glove, left-handed glove in uh, baseball. And we started playing a little catch and, or, or fetch if you will, because I didn't really know where it was going. Um, and that sort of started it in terms of being introduced to the sport. But what happened was we moved to an out of town situation or on the edge of town uh, when I was five, turned eight and the town started a little league. So I grew up with the little league when I was eight and you could start. I started with them and, and literally grew with the with the league. You know, you were drafted in 1967 by the New York Mets. When would you say that you were on the Mets radar that there's a possibility that you might sign with this organization from New York? I had no idea until the baseball coach uh, from Westchester came running down through the football stands. We were having a graduation rehearsal out on the football field uh, on that draft day. <clears throat> and he came racing through the stands to tell me I had been drafted uh, fourth in the country, first by the Mets. And that was my first indication that uh, anybody was going to draft me. No, I'm, I read something, John, now before 32, there was a number 35 that was on uh, John Matlack's back. How, how did that come to be? I got called up um, while the team was on the road and they had limited jerseys. And <laughs> so I got given what fit me, which was number 35. And as soon as I could, and we got back home, I sweet talked Herbie Norman, who was the equipment manager into the number I really wanted, which was 32. And he, was a pain in the butt. He just played like he was never going to give it to me. And about three days later, it was hanging in my locker. Didn't he realize that you were basically uh, wearing the number in tribute to Sandy Koufax? I guess he didn't know that, huh? No, he knew that. I told him the whole tale. And uh, he was one of those practical jokers that didn't really care one way or the other. He was going to get his pound of flesh <laughs> to make sure I paid for it. You know, Danny, uh, every kid who was introduced to this ex extraordinary sport, wants to have that game of catch, just like the movie Field of Dreams. Hey, Dad? 
You want to have a catch? I'd like that. When did that, your earliest recollection that that happened for you, Danny? But interesting enough, when is it that that feeling that you are the son of a baseball player, that your father is John Matlack? And also, what words of wisdom, besides that playing of catch, what words of wisdom did uh, your father share with you? Sure. So I think one thing I'd love to make clear is that it sounds like oh, your father is X, Y, Z, it was normal. Dad was dad. Um, I think a lot of folks don't realize that famous people are just people too, right? So there's that aspect of it, right? So for me, it wasn't necessarily, oh my goodness, I'm playing catch with a famous ball player. It was, I'm just playing catch with my father. And I think the first, the earliest memories I have was they used to pull us out of school for spring training. I don't know, dad, if you remember that, we'd go to Florida and, and, being in the outfield 80s wearing red shorts and a half shirt up to here and you know playing catch in the outfield with my dad and he would bring the golden retriever and you know it was you know that we had a little condo on a, a canal and you know my sisters was there my mom was there and it was like a break from school and being able to play catch but then at some point at that age even young looking around wow, I'm in a cathedral of baseball, I'm in a minor league ballpark, I'm in a spring training ballpark, I'm playing catch with my dad. It starts to set in at some point that you're a little bit different than playing catch with some other folks, for sure. Um, so I think that's probably my earliest memories of like just playing catch and realizing it's not a normal game of catch in a backyard because I'm literally playing catch next to the 350 sign in the outfield You know, at spring training. So those are definitely some pretty fond memories. Um, and what was the, sorry, what was the end of the, the last part of the question there? Some words of wisdom, maybe in, in that outfield, when you're playing catch, when you're walking to the dugout, maybe you asked your father a question or maybe uh, your father right, happened right. to relay something to you. Right. I think the, the biggest words of wisdom he ever gave me when I was on the field was learn how to duck. Um, <laughs> I, I promise you, I spent a number of summers with him when he was coaching in the minor leagues, and I've been hit with some line drives just behind second base when I wasn't paying attention, and uh, that, that's probably the best advice I've ever gotten is pay attention to what's going on on the ball field. That, that baseball moves very quickly. And, and guess what? It, you Probably when that happened to you, he said, hey, Danny, didn't you listen to me? What's the first thing that I told you, you know? You know, every... every Every parent, Danny, just wishes the absolute best for their son or daughter. Anything that they wish to put their mind on in regards to their future endeavors. But here it is, Danny, that there was a lot of excitement in a Matlack household from when we're talking specifically 1995, when you signed with the San Diego Padres organization. What was that debut like for you? I mean, again, your, your career was short, but there had to have been a lot of excitement in your household. Yeah, I, I, it was very exciting for me. I signed after the draft as a free agent, and I remember the phone call. It was in we were living in Ohio at the time, and it was very exciting for me. Um, getting there and actually starting to play, it didn't really set in until I think maybe my first mini camp game where I actually was out on a mound. And it was funny because the very first batter I ever faced as a professional, I threw a fastball inside and I didn't throw very hard my first year. So, you know, 83, 85, 
And then I threw a really nasty change up, which my father taught me my whole life. And the kid came out of his shoes, let go of his bat and flew over the dugout into the next practice field, not making that up. And that's when I was like, okay, maybe I could do this a little bit. I don't know. But I remember having a big grin on my face thinking, okay, that's how you throw a change up. 50 years ago, John Matlack made his Major League Baseball debut against the Cincinnati Reds. He even mentioned how extremely nervous he was in his first ever game by pacing back and forth in the clubhouse. He pitched seven innings, gave up six hits, and two earned runs. But he earned a no decision as the Mets lost five to three. And guess who was the losing pitcher in that game? And which future Hall of Famer took Matlack and this reliever with the familiar name Deep? Well, it was second game of a doubleheader. And the thing that I remember most was the clubhouse guy in Cincinnati in the visiting locker room being so pissed off at me that he was going to bill me for the carpet he swore I wore out pacing during the first game. <laughs> but now when, when we got started in the, in the ball game, there was the normal anxious anticipation and, and nerves when you started and, and then into the game. And it was a Tight ball game. I was doing well. We were doing okay. We were back behind two to one on the strength of a uh, opposite field Tony Perez home run. Uh, I learned very early that he likes to hit the breaking ball because I tried to throw him one and it went out to right field uh, with a man on. Uh, so I'm down two to one. We I get pinch hit for I think in the seventh inning, uh, and we score some runs and, and go up three to two. Uh, and they bring in Seaver to relief because it's just just imagine that Tom Seaver coming in for relief. It's actually that's incredible. Yeah, it's right on top of All Star break. He's not going to pitch again. He's had a couple of days rest, and uh, apparently they thought this was a a good way to utilize him. And lo and behold, lo and behold Mr. Perez got the hit again, hit another home run, and we lose five three. Uh, so my first win. Uh, was actually lost by a Hall of Famer named Seaver, who ended up being a pretty good friend. <laughs> and may he rest in peace as well. You know, recently, um, really, not necessarily recently, but with, with, with pretty much within the last couple of years, especially, there's been a strong movement uh, in the minor leagues where, listen, they've been voicing their displeasure on housing, uh, clubhouse food, and certainly substandard pay. And I like to ask this question for the two of you. And Danny, we could start off with you. Your recollections, um, your experience in a minor league, I mean, was the housing an issue? I mean, you know, 25, 26 years ago, certainly uh, there's been a slight uptick in pay, but I kind of like to hear your thoughts. And then even also uh, part two to this question is, do you believe, and again, this is for Danny and of course, John, that may be the possibility of the minor leagues in some form or fashion uh, having a union, being unionized. So first yeah. with Danny. Sure, yeah. So for me, um, you know, I didn't get a very large signing bonus. It was after the draft, et cetera. But because my rookie league was where they hold spring training, we were in a very nice hotel and I spent my first year in a hotel. Um, but there were others that were there doing rehab, et cetera, because that was their home base that were in the minor leagues that were barely scraping by trying to make ends meet in an apartment and they weren't getting subsidized housing at that point. So, you know, I think our monthly pay was 
$500, $600 a month, but they also gave us meal money and took care of us and fed us. So at that point, it was maybe give or take. But if we fast forward, some minor leaguers are making the same amount I made in 95 today. That does not equate. So, you know, for, for the perspective of what I understand, what's going on through reading articles, knowing some people who are still playing the game, et cetera, I think it should change. Um, but again, how do you do that? What's the best approach? I know my father was involved in some of the, you know, player rep situations in the eighties that he could maybe speak on. But as far as the minor leagues go, I definitely feel baseball in general could do a better job. I wouldn't be supportive of a union necessarily if it was only for minor league players. You know, there's the players association. They could take responsibility for some of that. But my opinion would be that it should be the responsibility of each individual ball club to take care of their players at every level of their development, whether it means educational systems for people coming from out of country, whether it's educational systems of culture, whether it's how do you do things in the United States if you've never been here before? All of those things should be a part of the system if they're not already. Uh, John, uh, your thoughts? Well, I, I hearken back to the, the absolute dark ages of baseball. <laughs> when in, in 1968, I'm playing in, in A-ball in the Carolina League. And when we made a commuter uh, road trip, meaning that we might go two and a half hours on the bus, play a game and come back two and a half hours, for three straight days rather than spend the night in a hotel, um, we got half a meal, half a day's meal money, which at that point was a dollar and a half rather than $3 a day. Wow. Wow. Um, and that essentially bought you a hot dog and a Coke. Uh, at the not two, not two hot dogs, not two no, hot dogs. That would cover one. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's know, why he's still skinnier than I am even today. <laughs> <laughs> but it, there, there's a method to that. I believe, and, and the minor league has definitely gotten way, way better than it used to be. Uh, is it as good as it should be? I, maybe not. The things that Dan was talking about uh, in terms of, of preparation for people who haven't been to the country, don't speak the language, aren't familiar with the culture, all of that is in place in most organizations. Um, and the food situation is much, much better. There's nutritionists on board, uh, food at the ballpark uh, daily, um, pre and post game in a lot of organizations, if not all. So all of that has come a long, long way. Um, they're talking now about trying to institute year round pay for minor leaguers. Um, I, I don't know that I'm in favor of it. I'm not, not sure that I'm against it. You need to have a, a subsistence wage. There's no question, but we knew when I was in the minor leagues, I was going to have to go home and get another job. There was no way I was going to make it through the winter on what I made over the course of the summer because it barely got me through the summer. That's an incentive to do what you have to do to put your nose to the grindstone, to pay your dues, if you will, to earn the right to win the lottery, which is a shot at the big leagues. And that's literally what it is. You're, you're winning the lottery, whether it was my day and age or whether it's today. Um, and, and I think you need to have that carrot out there in front of them. If guys get too comfortable in a minor league existence, that's just where they'll stay. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that's one of the reasons I would be against a minor league union is simply for that fact, right? Uh, you do need to earn your spot. That's why the minor leagues are there. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to see people living in squalor, having a very difficult time while trying to be the best of the best, the highest percentage athlete they can be, because that becomes a challenge as well, right? 
Yeah, no, I uh, definitely could, you know, relate to both sides of what uh, your father uh, and Danny, of course, what you have stated. And definitely it's one of those things that needs to be, you know, continued throughout each of the organizations from the standpoint of what is best for the players that hopefully eventually will make it to the big show. You know, uh, John and Danny, do you do know that uh, this podcast is dedicated to the great one, Roberto Clemente. And surely if there's one moment throughout this podcast that everyone's going to be glued to is the, the next question or two that we begin to talk about uh, the late, great Roberto Clemente. And um, interesting uh, stat that I wanted to bring to your attention that throughout the 1971 season, Clemente batted 341. Against right-handed pitchers, he batted 320. Against left-handed pitchers, he batted 369. But interesting enough, against the New York Mets, he actually batted an astonishing 396. So those numbers speak volumes, John. But what I'm going to ask you is maybe something that a lot of times people don't ask you is what was your first impression on the accuracy of Clemente's throwing arm? And can you compare him with other players of that generation? Well, I answered the first one, the last one first. You can't compare, you can't compare him. He probably had the best arm, born on strength, that accuracy. Uh, anywhere in baseball at that time. Um, and I did see him at the end of his career, but it was impressive uh, to see no matter where he was on the field, when he got a hold of the baseball runners put on the brakes immediately. They were called the lumber company and for good reason. During the 1970s, Clemente, Stargell, Oliver, Sanguian, Hebner, Robinson, Cash, led the Pirates to the playoffs five times in the six seasons from 1970 to 1975. Their quick bats, strong wrists, unbelievable power from both sides of the plate were one for the ages. These phenomenal players literally hit everything. I mean everything. And what did Matlack have to say about Clemente and the rest of his teammates' approach at the plate? The date was September 18th, 1972. You pitched a complete game against the Pirates at Shea Stadium. The final score, 1-0. And you actually gave up only, John, five hits. And you, interesting enough, struck out six, including Clemente in that game. But you got Stargell. You got Oliver. You got Manny Sanguin. Jose Pagan. Jackie Hernandez. You got guys that could put, you know... Uh, Richie Hebner, you got guys there that could hit. What was John Matlack's approach to that lineup? That was the lumber company, man. They left the dugout swinging the bat. So if you put it close with a little bit of movement on it, they're going to try and do something with it. And basically, I wanted to let their aggression and ambition to put the ball in play work against them by using the edges of the strike zone um, and some movement, speed changes to hopefully invite some friendly contact. And a lot of times I was successful, other times not so. You know, John, I don't know if you remember, but in 2012, and it was the 40th anniversary of the 3000 fit, we actually talked for the very first time. We already knew each other for a few years, but finally I said, 
you know, going to have this opportunity to work on the story on the 40th anniversary of the Clemente's 3000 fit. And uh, it's interesting what you shared with me about what occurred on September 30th, 1972. You said, I'm thinking to myself, if I make a good pitch with the curveball over the outside of the plate, I got a good chance of getting them out. When the ball comes out of my hand, I was mad at myself because I realized at that moment it isn't going to be a strike. I was shocked that he swung it, he swung at it and hitting the ball with such authority. Matlack on the 0-1. Bobby hits a drive for the gap in the left center field. There she is. Papers flying, everybody standing. A double for Roberto. I wanted to share what another ball player, someone who you knew. This former ball player said this for the New York Daily News in 1966 about pitching to Clemente. There is no such thing as a good pitch to Clemente. Ask me how he would pitch to Clemente, and I will tell you with complete confidence. How do I know? Baseball Hall of Famer Sandy Koufax. So interesting, in the previous at-bat of hit 3,000, you struck out Clemente. But John, with that unorthodox swing, how can a guy like that still make contact with the baseball? I don't think it's all that difficult. He had tremendous eye-hand coordination, maybe better than, than most. Um, he did take a big stride. He did take it generally early. But his hands never left the cock position until he was ready to turn loose the bat. And because of that eye-hand coordination and the size of the bat he used, if he got it where the ball was when he needed to, it was going to get rifled somewhere. Um, what I noticed, what little bit of exposure I had to him pitching-wise, uh, he tended to leave the inside corner alone. Um, I don't know why. Maybe he liked to extend his arms more. But it seemed like if he was going to take a pitch and you get a called strike, it would be over the inside corner. Um, and that was one of the reasons I thought that the curveball in that situation was going to be a good pitch, because if I can bring it in from the outside, make it appear to be a ball, uh, he's going to leave it alone. Um, it was still outside. It never made the strike zone, and he didn't leave it alone. So I was wrong on that count. And as they say, uh, the rest is history when that ball sails into uh... – left center field, and uh, he's there standing at second base. And it's interesting when you even think about how many fans were in the ballpark at Three Rivers. Interesting enough, it wasn't like uh, today's game, which those uh, milestones are celebrated and you got a full house. And like uh, I want to see 15,000, wasn't it? Or exactly. Yeah, something along those lines. After the 1971 season, John would travel to Puerto Rico to play winter baseball for the San Juan Senators. His manager was Bill Verdon, who not only won a World Series in 1960, but had an impressive career as a player and big leagues manager. But there was something else that occurred in Puerto Rico that to this day, Matlack has never forgotten. Clemente invited the players from the States over for dinner at his home in Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. So before there was ever the remote possibility of facing Clemente in a game that sadly would be his final regular season hit, number 3,000. 
Matlack saw another side of the Great One. Very few had the opportunity to truly experience and witness up close. It was a great experience. Uh, the Puerto Rico Winter League was better than AAA ball at that time, but not quite Major League. And it was a great schooling situation for me, having spent three years in, in AAA uh, as a preparation for the next step, which was going to be the big leagues in, in 72. Um, I started out as a starter, scuffled a little bit. Burden was having none of it. Put me in the bullpen, said, if you can't straighten yourself out, that's where you go spend your winter. And so I had to knuckle down and figure out some things and got my command back better and was put back in the uh, starting situation um, a little bit after that. But the trip to Clemente's house, we had, I think, eight U.S. players that played on that San Juan team. Um, split between the Pirates and the Mets, oddly enough. I think there might have been one player from some other organization, but it was basically Pirates and Mets. And he invited us all to his home for dinner and was a wonderful host. And it was just a great evening. Um, the thing I remember most about it was getting a little tour of the house and to his sort of like my room, it was a little bigger, a uh, little trophy area. And he was talking to the hitters with a maximum dimension bat showing some things about hitting. And I was just looking around the room because being a pitcher, I wasn't that interested in the hitting part of it. Uh, and I wanted to see the other trophies that were there. Uh, so when he was done and they moved on, I went over to see this bat that he was acting as if it was a toothpick and I could barely get it off the ground. Uh, so the obvious strength in the man's hands and, and, and forearms was impressive. Uh, and it created an impression then and there that maybe I should have remembered <laughs> the next year because he can handle that bat. He, he was he was going to be able to stay back and still use the wrist and forearm to get the bat through the zone when needed. John, uh, December 31st, 1972. Do you remember that day? Did, where were you when you heard the news that he had passed away tragically? I was at home and it was on the news and it was a, an absolute shocker, absolute out of the blue shocker. You know, John, you talk so much about um, visiting Clemente's home and having the opportunity to visit someone in their home for the very first time. You're going to see the hospitality. You're going to see the other side of that person, not the baseball player, but someone that welcomed ball players who are playing in the Puerto Rican league to, to his home. What is it that specifically stuck out about Roberto that particular day, but also Roberto was known to answer fan mail. Roberto was known to visit hospitals. Roberto was known to visit people that were ill, people that were in need. And we all know what he, where he was going on December 31st, 1972. So were you aware at all, John, or did you hear any rumblings or any discussions that this was the type of person Roberto Clemente was? Well, from that evening and some discussion that took place, it was obvious that he was a philanthropist, but the extent to which he was, I did not realize until his tragic death. Uh, it was obvious he was that type of person, but I would have never known the extent of it uh, had the tragedy not occurred and, and news subsequent come out about it. You know, Danny, uh, listening to your father right now, 
again, your thoughts on, once again, a ball player that passed away, you weren't even born. I have a recollection, a vague recollection, and if I may, I could even plug that for those uh, also listening. Today, actually, the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, a piece that I wrote on Clemente, uh, this year marks the 50th anniversary. There was a Roberto Clemente night at Shea Stadium. And not only that it was a night, but it was also a weekend that the Puerto Rican community in New York, New York City celebrated uh, the legacy. The, the program was actually called Superstar. So here it is, Danny. You've had a chance to see so many superstar ball players, but not a, necessarily a superstar ball player that had that philanthropy, that, that Clemente is known as a humanitarian. But Danny, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, again, the relationship that part of history of your dad and Clemente. What is it? And again, when you heard Clemente, his name talked about for the first time, did you kind of look into who this person was? Absolutely. Um, a lot of people hear my father's name and synonymously, specifically Latino friends, oh, Roberto Clemente. And I'm like, no, jo John Matlack. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you get, you get into those conversations and while sure it was a hit given up, it was an important hit, obviously, and the final hit. And then you, you start doing research and you realize, wow, what, what a thing, right? I mean, you've got uh, a dark-skinned man from a different country in the United States at that day and age doing the utmost as an athlete, winning over fans in his community, in his city, and across the country, and supporting other countries and a tragically dying supporting other countries. Can we get more? Can we please propagate this? Can we just teach this to all of our children? Uh, why not, right? Uh, it's a lesson everyone should learn. It's a lesson everyone should be a part of. And uh, you know, thank you for continuing to bring his legacy to the forefront because it is important that people understand with great fame, comes responsibility, whether that's through politics, sports, indifferent, you do have a responsibility, I feel innately to help somewhere, somehow. It's not all about you. And he probably gave us a great example of that, sacrificing his life at that time of the year to help people in a country that wasn't even his. Can we get more of that today, please? While he played in the Padres organization, Dan enjoyed the camaraderie with Latino players while his father, who once his playing career ended, he became a coach in the big leagues for a number of years. He began to see the growth of baseball, specifically big league talent from Latin American countries. John even described and credited Latino ballplayers, hunger for the game, tenacity, work ethic, and wanting to improve. So I asked John and Dan Matlack to share their thoughts where baseball is today and players entering the big leagues who grew up outside the United States. Uh, Danny, um, you know, this year opening day rosters, um, you had close to 256 players representing from 20 different countries. When you played 25 years ago, uh, Danny, you actually had a player of Mexican descent and you had a ball player from Australia. So my question to you, Danny, how important is diversity in Major League Baseball and for baseball as a whole to be culturally sensitive to ball players who enter the big leagues 
in the United States. Because right now, let's face it, uh, the face of baseball is, um, you know, uh, Fernando Tatis and Shohei Otani. So I'd like to hear your thoughts, considering, like I said, here it is, the two the two face of baseball, you know, were raised outside the United States. Yeah, sure. I mean, we call it the World Series, but has it ever really been such? You know, that's a that's a funny thing to think about. I mean, when I played, uh, you know, there were there were a few more outside of the United States folks on, on my rookie league team and and definitely in spring training with the Padres, multiple guys from multiple areas of the world. For me, particularly uh, Latino players brought the spice. They brought the flavor. I didn't go and hang out with the pitchers and rug flagpoles. I hung out in the outfield and played flip with all of my friends in Puerto Rico because it was more fun. It made the game more fun. It made the game faster. Um, it, it made things more enjoyable for me. And, you know, there's there's the joking aspect to it as well, where Latino players throw a lot of sauce into what they do and how they play. But at the end of the day, it it comes down to, are you good enough to be there? And do you belong there? And et cetera. And, and they all do. And we all do, right? So having an inclusive environment in professional sports, whether it's baseball or any other sports, has to be the norm. And particularly in the culture we're in today, if you're not, you're doing something wrong. And baseball has always led the way, I think. And I'm, I'm proud to be a part of the baseball family, and I'm glad that my father was as well, and that he raised me in that way. The concept of cultural indifferences outside of the baseball field, bringing that into the baseball family, making it normalized, making that a standard for people then to come and watch and see how it works, not how it doesn't work, because it does work, um, I think is a great standard for baseball to have. And as Latino players have influenced baseball and other parts of the world, as you mentioned, Australia, et cetera, um, the more the merrier, the better, right? I, bringing in all the inclusiveness for all the different cultures, making sure that they're all supported well, and putting that into this giant mixing pot that has become Major League Baseball can only make the sport better. And I've, I've enjoyed watching that happen. And I hope that we continue to support that. I personally would love to see more support in the minor leagues for kids coming from overseas. But as my father mentioned earlier, there are systems in place now to help with that. Um, there have been some poor practices in the past that are turning around. So maybe we're on a good step moving forward. But uh, absolutely think that from my time when I played and even further back when my father first started, the game has become way more diverse, but also way more inclusive as it has over history. And I think moving forward, it will continue to do so. You know, John, I'd like you to piggyback on a little bit of, uh, if not uh, much of what your son discussed, um, but specifically if you had to pinpoint the influx of players from outside the United States when you were coach, as opposed to your playing days. So if you could talk a bit, uh, again, when you were a coach, about that cultural shift. Well, the, the cultural shift for me as a coach was the Latin player was prevalent um, and by far the hungrier group um, that showed up wanting to improve, wanting to find a way to do whatever they had to do uh, to become better and, and move up the ladder and ultimately become major league players. Um, the work ethic and the tenacity um, was by far and away above a, a lot of other folks. Um, and I think it gave them a leg up and it's prevalent in the game today. There's a lot more um, 
really quality Latin ballplayers than there certainly were in the age that I played. You know, John, uh, today's baseball is not the baseball of uh, your generation. And listen, I'm 55 years old, and it's certainly not uh, mine from what we see today. It's all about the launch angle. It's all about the spin rate. It's all about the exit velocity and so much more. It's called analytics. And former Major League Baseball player uh, Carlos Torres is interesting. Uh, he even asked if Clemente, and would he have been a different player? in the world of analytics and the training protocols in place. John, do you think, and you know, Danny, you could piggyback on this well, as well, has baseball turned away from simply allowing players to learn the game by watching what's on the field? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll let my dad go first on that one, but yeah, please go ahead. A absolutely, they've turned away from, from watching and learning on the field. There's uh, such a desire, I think, at the upper levels of the sport to get people to the big leagues as quickly as possible. Um, there's less uh, patience, if you will, to allow folks to develop, possibly allowing them to have longer and, and stronger, healthier careers. Uh, if they spend another year and a half in the minor leagues, they're pushing them to get there sooner, sometimes at their own detriment, sometimes not. It's hard to say. But the game is very different now. And would players be different today under that auspices? I can't say that they wouldn't. But I think a lot of today's players are less dynamic in, in that they're single dimensional. Um, the, the desire to hit the ball, not only out of the stadium, but out of the county, uh, seems to be prevalent amongst most players. Uh, and in my day and age, they took advantage of the bad pitch and would launch it for you. But they were much more anxious to put solid contact on the ball and, and take what came. Um, and I think there were a lot more higher average hitters, uh, on-base percentage guys. Uh, the game was played uh, with pitching and defense, and you stretched out a run and tried to sit on it. Today, it's more football scores and three-run homers. Yeah, I, I honestly, if I could go back in time and pick a time to be a pitcher in professional baseball, I'd pick right now because I'm way more of a Greg Maddox. I can't throw 96 miles an hour. I, I never did that, but I was taught how to pitch. I was taught how to think on the mound. I know how to field my position. I know how to put guys in the right places. I know what pitches to throw for what reasons at what time. Now, if you give me a guy who's focused on launch angles, who's focused on I'm going to hit a home run to win the game. I feel like those are easy outs to me. I know pitchers in today's day and age are more focused on how hard do we throw and we blow a ball by them. And absolutely there are fantastic pitchers in the game today. And I would not want to take anything away from what they do, but I feel like the game has lost its way in the competition between pitchers and batters. It's become a challenge of who can throw it harder and who can hit it further. And that's not baseball. Baseball is put the ball in play throw the ball, catch the ball, and it becomes an exciting game to play. And it becomes stealing bases and bunting for second to third and moving guys over. And I miss that kind of baseball. Now, maybe it's just because I grew up with that with my dad. And I, you know, I have a longing for that because that's how I grew up. But it's more exciting now. Games are faster. They don't take as much time. Fans are a little bit more involved. There's a lot more home runs. But 
I'd love to see a little bit more gamemanship. And we don't see that too often now because I think people are focused on training themselves to do particular things instead of everything. I want to see guys who can do everything. I want you to hit the ball to right, hit the ball to left. What, what's your situation? You got a guy on second, you got to move him over, bunt. I don't care if you're hitting 350. They don't know how to bunt, though, Danny. They don't know how to bunt. They don't know how to bunt, right? I've seen so many guys try and bunt and fail miserably. And then sometimes they hit a home run and and no one talks about it. Well, okay, sure. But I think strikeouts are up and home runs are up, but baseball is down. I'd much rather see us get back to playing the game it was meant to be played. But again, and maybe just showing my age a little too, right? The game changes with time, so... Whether it's better or worse, I can't say, but I can definitely say I much enjoyed playing the game when it was more of a player's game than a statistician's game. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting way to put it, uh, Danny. Um, You know, um, immediately I'm saying to myself, you know, Danny, you grew up a Mets fan and you're speaking to uh, John Matlack and his son, but you're speaking to a former Met, a 1973 National League champion. So I have to ask, a Met question. And John, the Met question is that particular year that, you know, we talk about the miracle Mets, but we have to talk about the, you gotta believe 1973 Mets. But John, that is the team that I remember when I was seven years old. If you were to ask me, talk about the Mets of 1993, I'm going to tell you, okay, let me think of uh, who was playing in 1993, but my, my, I'm going to be blank. If you told me 1973, yes, I'm seven years old. I know you had John Milner. I know you had Felix Mian. I know you had Wayne Garrett. I know you had Don Hahn, George Theodore, Jerry Grody, Siva, Kuzman, Matlack. You know, I could literally go through that entire lineup and even have recollections of that fight with Bud Harrelson and Pete Rose and Willie Mays going in left field, looking at fans and basically saying, listen, we want to play this game. Could you stop throwing things? But those are things that I remember. But, John, I wanted to ask you, and you've been asked so many questions about that, you got to believe, 1973 team. But, John, if you think for a moment, if you can, for our listeners, even for Danny Torres, where would you say, if you had to look at the series itself, where something that was planned accordingly just didn't fall in the Mets' favor in that series against the Oakland A's? But pick any one of the first six games that we lost. We should have won all six of those games. I think we literally uh, were a better team in those six games. Um, But the score didn't prove out that that was the case. Uh, The real Oakland A's showed up in game seven. Um, Campy hit a good curveball. Reggie hit a curveball that you probably could have hit out. Um, and, And that was the... That was the the name of that game right there. But, you know, in those first first games, we had had them on the ropes. Um, Felix made an error in that first game. uh, But I gave the the pitcher the pitch that he hit for a double that drove the run in. Um, If I get him out, it's a whole different ballgame. You know, it looks like Willie Mays is safe at home plate. That one play, uh, umpire called him out. And we've seen the images of that. We've seen the video footage. We've seen the images. There's numerous places. If you look through those first six games, um, we outplayed them for six games, but we only won three of them. And that told the story. Um, 
any game that you could say, John, you kind of dissected and like literally go inning by inning, pitch by pitch? I mean, anything in particular so many years later, John, or it's just almost, hey, listen, Oakland A's won, you know, we're going to move forward. No, there, there's there's really nothing that when I go back and there's no recollection now that would let me go pitch by pitch. Um, but I did for a little while, look back and sort of reminisce and say, what if, and should I have, and that kind of thing. And the bottom line is no, you know, the, the decisions that you make game time, I'm sticking with, I'm not throwing the ball unless it's the one I'm convinced is right for that circumstance. Um, if I execute, fine. If I don't, that's on me. If I execute and they hit the ball, tip the hat. There are major league players as well and, and certainly talented enough to do that from time to time. So it all comes down to being able to make your own decisions and having the stick to to stay the course when you've made them. And that's pretty much, I think, what got me to the big leagues and ultimately what kept me there. That's interesting, uh, John, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. You know, Danny, uh, you're currently a senior producer. And, you know, again, I talk to 21 listeners immediately are going to hear Marvel Avengers. And now I'm sure they would love to hear about some future projects. But you also play the acoustic guitar and are a singer and songwriter. But talk about that transition from the minor leagues to music to Marvel. Absolutely. So I got hurt. I tore my ACL playing a little basketball in college and had a surgery or two, got it cleaned out, um, tried to play, tore it again, tore it again. Uh, very difficult being a large gentleman trying to feel bunts. Um, so, you know, when I left baseball, it was, what am I going to do? I don't know. I tried so many different things. I uh, tried opening a restaurant. I worked as a newspaper editor for a while, just trying to find my way. And during the restaurant building, I got into video games and how to make them, how to mod them, and got my first job in New York City working for a great studio and just kind of built a career from there, which has now led me to working for Marvel. But the whole thing was, what do you do after baseball? I mean, that was the biggest question, right? Like, what I thought I would be my dad. That's what every boy thinks. I, I never had even considered well, I'm going to get hurt or I'm not going to be good enough or whatever politics, this, that doesn't matter. Right. You never, you never consider you're going to fail because people that do never are successful. So when you get into that position, it was basically, well, it took a few years of my life to figure out what I was good at, what I enjoyed and ended up finding a great career in, in video game creation and very happy to work with Disney and Marvel creating their video games and, and working with a wonderful group of people. But I think a lot of players find that challenge, specifically players from outside of the United States. I got a lot of money or maybe a little money, come to the US, learning the culture, and then you're cut or you're released. Do you go home? Can you go home? Do you stay? If you stay, what do you do? Um, a lot of guys that play baseball didn't finish college and they're in the minor leagues and they're not sure where they're gonna go. Um, I've been blessed my whole life to have the support of my parents, period, bar none. And they have helped me through hard times, good times, all times. So I couldn't tell you how much I love my mother and father for being such supportive parents and how great they are. But a lot of ballplayers don't have that coming out of the minor leagues and where they're going to go. 
I would say if it wasn't for my father and my mother instilling in me great work ethic, understanding what it is you need to do to accomplish a certain thing and to finish it and get there, I would never be where I am today. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. But again, there's that thing with baseball. What happens when you stop playing? Where do you go and what do you do? Uh, I did not have the greatest of years for a few times here and there, but eventually found my way and you know, very grateful to be where I am. And of course, music helps a lot as well because you throw a baseball X amount of miles per hour for so many years, you get all your aggressions out. You play sports, you get all your physical aggressions out. Hey, well, hey Danny, it's, it's therapeutic. You know, it's therapeutic. Very much so. You know? And so music for me was the next step of, well, I can scream my head off or write rock songs or sing and get all this aggression out. It makes me feel good. So I've continued that and will continue that for years and years as, as long as I live. And it's a great therapeutic kind of thing. But again, you know, my success outside of baseball literally comes from my parents teaching me how to be successful as a child, as a middle adult, and continuing to support me where I falter. And a lot of folks don't get that support. So very grateful for that. But, you know, you see it a lot in baseball where, where kids fail or don't succeed, maybe not fail, but don't succeed. And then and then what? Right. So, yeah, that's uh, that's sort of how my, my little path went. But. Again, I would, would not have ever been able to be successful in what I do today without my parents' support. Well, Danny, I really appreciate your honesty, and I'm sure we have a proud father listening to these words right now. And um, it's nice to uh, be able to share that. You know, um, as we wrap up uh, this podcast, and I once again want to thank you guys so much for being a part of it. And John, I know I told you in person, but I'll say it again. Uh, we've known each other for quite some time, and I appreciate the friendship and getting a chance to meet your son, uh, my fellow Danny. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. But uh, for our podcast listeners, there's some that do not know that John Matlack was inducted into the New York Mets Hall of Fame. So, John, on behalf of the Talking Twenty One crew, they don't congratulate. Uh, listen, I, I put it on my, I put it on my Twitter account. I put it on my Twitter account, so I only have about 1,800 followers. So you know, God, uh, I, thought, I thought that was the news lead. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I tried my best. I tried my best. But, you know, there's some other news, and it's been literally since 2006 that there was a grassroots movement uh, that started actually in New York City on wanting to see the great Roberto Clemente's number retired throughout Major League Baseball. And John and Danny, and you know what? I'm going to start with you, John Matlack, because you faced him, had an opportunity to get to know the man. You visited his home. You obviously are part of history. You're part of the Clemente family. You got a chance to speak to his niece uh, that day at City Field, uh, Janet Clemente, and she was thrilled to speak to you. But what are your thoughts on the retirement of a number throughout Major League Baseball? It's for certainly Jackie Robinson. But what are your thoughts if that were to happen for the great Roberto Clemente? I think it would be absolutely marvelous. Uh, I had not really thought about it until you just mentioned it, but uh, I, I certainly would be happy to get behind something like that. Well, glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. Danny Boy, what's your thoughts? Absolutely, 100%. You don't often have a generational hero who not only supports the sport and changes the game and the way it's played, but comes from outside of the United States at the time that he played and supported his culture, his family, his people. And it's a very tragic thing that he died in support of those people. And I would, I think it would be a, a wonderful thing for MLB to do that and take care of that for sure. Well, Danny and John Matlack, thank you so very much for being on the Talking 21 podcast. 
It really was a thrill, a thrill as a Met fan, a thrill as a Clemente fan, but I know our listeners are going to enjoy this particular episode. So once again, guys, I thank you so very much. My pleasure, Dan. Yep, happy to be here. Thank you, Danny. Well, John and Danny Matlack, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the Talking 21 podcast. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. But before we wrap up, if you enjoyed this podcast, and I know you did, please be sure to immediately subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking 21 Podcast. And yes, we're on Facebook and on YouTube. So keep listening for all the latest information about our episode drops. A special thank you, mil gracias, to our co-writer and executive producer, Rasquevara, and to our social media manager, Senor Basil. This is your host, Danny Torres, and be sure to follow me. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at DannyT21. Tune in next time for our continued conversation about the great one, Roberto Clemente Walker. Adios.